At noon on the following day, as their journey brought them close to the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted to eat. While the others were preparing the meal, he had a visionary experience. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large linen sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. Inside the sheet were all kinds of four-legged animals, reptiles, and wild birds. A voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter exclaimed, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke a second time. Never consider unclean what God has made pure. This happened three times. Then the object was suddenly pulled back into heaven. Peter was bewildered about the meaning of the vision. Just then, the messengers sent by Cornelius discovered the whereabouts of Simon's house and arrived at the gate. Calling out, they inquired whether the Simon known as Peter was a guest there. He said to them, you all realize that it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders. However, God has shown me that I should never call a person impure or unclean. For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are beginning a new series today, but I have a warning for you. There's a specter haunting the church. The specter of deconstruction. <laughs> Full nod to my Marxists out there. Um, so we are starting a new series called Rebuilding Faith After Deconstruction. And it's something that a lot of us have been trying to do either on our own or on Twitter or, you know, in small circles. But deconstruction is a conversation we need to have as a church. And a lot of the church is freaking out about it, feeling like deconstruction is an enormous threat, feeling like deconstruction is just a word for I'm leaving the church forever. And you know what? Sometimes it is. But it doesn't have to be if that's not what we want it to be. So if you are a person engaging in deconstruction, but longing to find a way to have a faith that makes sense, a faith that actually feeds you rather than frightens you, a faith that roots you in community and in love and in the relationship with the divine, you can have that. We can have that. And we can build it together, build on it together. And that is what this series is all about. Now, if you don't know what deconstruction is, you are welcome here too, because we're going to talk about that as well. But I wanted to start, as we always do, with the scriptures, with what I believe is a scriptural, a biblical example of deconstruction. So we have Peter in the book of Acts. This is the early church finding itself, forming itself, taking risks to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus into the world. And Peter is going about his work, and he's praying. Peter is not doing his deconstruction out of a lack of faith, but out of a dedication to it. He's showing up to his faith, to the God who loves him. And in the context of his relationship with Jesus, in the context of his relationship with this community of the early church, in the context of his devotion and prayer, the time he spends with God, 
He, he gets so, so connected to God in his prayer that he straight up falls asleep. And while sleeping, Peter has a dream, a vision. This is a wild one. It's hard for us to imagine sometimes. It feels a little out of place in the book of Acts, which is very kind of, you know, straightforward. These people went there. They said these things to so-and-so. Everyone got mad at them, tried to kill them. That's basically Acts over and over and over again. So when we think of visions with sheets of, uh, like, linen sheets and wild animals and all these things, like, that's more apocalyptic. That's more David Revelation stuff that I think some of us have learned to steer a little clear from. (laughs) Because that stuff, because it's so wild, has often been taken in these incredibly different directions by folks who want to put their interpretations onto it. So I just want to name that we are getting into a more allegorical part of the text one that's rich with meaning. Luckily, here the text interprets itself for us, and so we're not left guessing what these wild animals on the sheets are supposed to mean. You see, Peter's dream is a revelation that God has made all things and that human beings should not call unclean what God has made clean. This has a context for Paul. Paul is Jewish, And a huge part of Paul's identity as a Jewish person in that time, and I'm so sorry, I keep saying, Paul, we are talking about Peter. We are talking about Peter. (laughs) Paul's a big character in Acts 2, but this is Peter. (laughs) A big part of Peter's identity as a Jewish person is, um, is the Jewish purity laws. So this is eating foods that are clean and not foods that are unclean, or as we would understand it today, keeping kosher, right? Peter keeps kosher, and that's really, really important to his cultural identity as a Jewish person and to the practice of his faith. But in this revelation, in this context of of his prayer and relationship with God, he receives this, this word, this new information, this new perspective that says, actually, you can't call unclean what God has made clean. And so, Peter comes out of this kind of wondering, what does this all mean? And we could stop at the, at the kind of dietary uh, interpretations here, right? That like, oh, maybe Peter's not going to keep kosher anymore. But Peter sees that there's actually something deeper here. That this gets to relationship with outsiders. That there had been a, an expectation that Jewish people would not interact with Gentiles, that is, with non-Jewish people. But the ministry that his faith is calling him to is putting him in direct relationship with all these Gentiles. And right after he comes out of this dream, he gets visited by some messengers trying to put him in relationship with a very important, well-respected, non-Jewish person. And Peter's got to make a choice. And based on this revelation, which comes from his relationship with God, which comes from his experience of the gospel, which comes from his community and his call of who God is inviting him to be in the world, he says, yes, I'll go immediately. And I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain because I know that I'm not supposed to interact with non-Jewish people in this way, but God has revealed to me that Nothing is unclean that God has made clean, and that no person is unclean, and we are meant to be together. This is Peter's deconstruction. 
This is Peter taking the teachings that he grew up with, the teachings that at some level he had taken for granted, the teachings that were concrete truth, the rules, the certainty that he had lived by his whole life, and examining them, re-examining them, or perhaps examining them for the first time under the, the context of his maturing love for God and his relationship with his community and who he was called to be in the world. And it changes. It changes how he lives. It changes the way that he talks about his faith and who he talks about it with. It changes who accepts him anymore and what rules he will or will not abide. Now, Peter's not the first to do this. Jesus is constantly getting in trouble throughout his ministry for breaking all the rules, breaking the laws. And Jesus responds often with this sort of like, you're getting it wrong. You don't understand what's happening here. You're trying to abide by the letter of the law and breaking its spirit. The law is not something that we are made to serve, but the law is here to serve us in our relationship with God. Jesus is so practiced at deconstruction, such a natural at breaking these things down, that sometimes we miss it altogether and we just take it as a new set of rules. But the rules... The rules and the rigidity, the certainty that so many of us grew up with, that's actually what needs to be broken down in order to have a mature Christian faith. And so we're going to be in that process together of examining our, de- our construction, our deconstruction, and what comes next, a reconstruction. So how many folks here feel like they are currently in or have ever been in some process of deconstruction, breaking down the rules, expectations, rigidity of the faith that you once had. Show of hands. All right, it's a popular practice here, and I love it. I'm here for it. In fact, I think that it's actually a really natural and important process of spiritual maturation. Spiritual development requires that we take those kind of unexamined beliefs, and we examine them. And depending on how broadly we were encouraged to examine them from day one, we might have a little work to do or a lot of work to do. But it can be really unsettling. And one of the images I want you to hold in your mind is the game of Jenga, right? So this is a game, wooden blocks all stacked in a tower, and the point is to be able to tap on those little bricks, get them to move, pull one out, and have the structure remain standing. And that's what a lot of us are trying to do with our deconstruction. We're trying to wiggle the easy ones. Oh, that one just flew right out of there. Didn't need that one. Done. Some of them feel a little shakier. And when we kind of wiggle them, we see the whole thing sway. We're like, oh man, is my faith actually going to hold up to me questioning this? What happens if I pull at this thread? What happens if I pull this brick out? What happens if the whole thing collapses? Will I be left with nothing? And the answer is no. You're left in a pile of bricks. And I believe that we actually can build something stronger, more stable, more connected, more life-giving out of that pile of rubble if the construction that we were born into or given as children was faulty or dangerous or harmful to begin with. But it can feel really scary to tap on those bricks. It can feel really scary to watch the foundation of your faith sway 
And so that's why we do it together. Now, I want to I wanna back you up a little bit off of religion, off of spirituality, because the stakes can feel so high. So I want to talk to you about my own experience of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction in the context of something totally easy and chill, politics. <laughs> so I always had progressive politics, uh, and I, I, I grew up with progressive politics, but I became active as an activist and as an organizer in my early 20s. I had been in the streets a bit as a teenager. I read a lot of political philosophy, but I dedicated my life after I graduated college to community organizing, and I did that vocationally and also with all of my free time and with an enormous amount of passion. Because I was in Chicago, uh, which is where I was born and raised, I quickly fell in with the Saul Alinsky crowd. Um, and Alinsky is uh, a very famous community organizer. I think actually coined the term, or at least developed the kind of theory of change upon which a lot of classic community organizing is based. And there are a lot of other philosophies in conversation now, but um, starting with the work that he did in the 30s and 40s, um, big, big influence, particularly in Chicago. And basically, what Saul Alinsky was doing was looking at labor organizing and union organizing and basically saying, what if we apply those principles to communities? What if we strive towards collective bargaining by putting a bunch of people without power in connection to each other get them at the table with those people who have the power and negotiate better terms of living in their neighborhoods, in their schools, wherever they could gather power. Not just the factory floor, but in the community. So I jumped right in. I familiarized myself with this theory. I got a job first as an intern and then as a field organizer at an organization I trusted and loved. And I was learning. I was taking everything in as gospel truth, everything in as black and white understanding of a theory of change. My boss was my mentor, and he was a true believer. He was pretty rigid about how things worked, pretty condescending to people who didn't agree with him. He thought that they were naive or silly. There was one way to make change, and it was this way, the way that we knew. And everybody who tried to do it other ways they were idiots or fooling themselves. Now, I was trained in this way to be um, only ever running a campaign, which is kind of the framework of that organizing, right? Only ever putting my effort toward something that had a clear, winnable, measurable demand. And one of the things that would happen when we would give trainings, I sat there in the training and I heard my mentor tell the whole room, you see them marching in the streets for peace. You've seen them marching since the 60s. What have they accomplished? And it was a rhetorical question with the implied answer, nothing. They've accomplished nothing. Because nobody even knows what they're demanding an end to war. What is that? So instead, we were trying to create access for disenfranchised people to sit at the tables of the halls of power and negotiate more specific things, changes in policy, in funding, um, access for different community members to different kinds of existing systems of power. The only way to win was to play within the system. We could break it just enough to sneak in the doors. 
but we weren't trying to overthrow anything. And in order to do that, to create access to the system, you had to look the part, act the part, talk the part. And so that meant dressing like those in power. And that meant talking like those in power. Now my little baby queer self, my little radical self, just kind of got buttoned right back up. And I wore what I was supposed to, I talked like I was supposed to, and I fit right in in those halls of power, in the Capitol building, in these business offices, where I negotiated at tables of power that I was so excited to finally have access to. But I remember having some questions. I, I had read some other things, had some other theories about it. I remember staying at the office late one night and writing my boss, my mentor, a really long note on a series of post-its. And I don't remember what I said, but I know that I quoted Audre Lorde. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. I had questions. Were we really changing anything? Or were we just playing this same game and winning more than never? The next day, when he came into the office and saw my note, he rolled his eyes at me, called me an idealist, and asked me if I wanted to win or if I wanted to be right. And I wanted to win. And you know what? We did. We did win. We got concrete, meaningful wins. I believed in our theory of change. I put everything behind it. And I felt powerful because I would, you know, have these late nights exiting church buildings, like from these basement meetings where we had been strategizing. And we would talk late night, waiting for the train on the platform, shaping the strategies, shaping the demands of hundreds or thousands of community members. We were writing policies that we were then able to put into place. And we won a lot. We got new labor laws to protect black and brown residents of understaffed Southside nursing homes. We created new paths to employment for people with criminal records. We won $2.4 million in funding for affordable housing. I was so invested. I was leading. I was training people. I had interns and other staff members I oversaw, and I was the one now saying, look at all those fools marching in the street without a clear demand. Take a shower, put on a tie, quit swearing so much. The irony there. <laughs> but I was deep, I was deep in that construction, that first phase, that time where I wasn't really able to question what I had been taught. My worldview had been constructed for me, and I gave all of my authority to my teachers, my mentors, my boss, and generally speaking, my own staff and interns and community leaders gave their authority to me. We all externalized it up the chain. And then, <laughs> I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't hold it together. I couldn't do the mental gymnastics. It broke down for me first with Occupy Wall Street. You see, there was this movement, and it started in New York, and it was wild and dirty, and it had all of my, 
like I, I saw in those crowds the same people and energy, those train-hopping dirtbags who I loved from my teenage years who had taught me what it meant to be radical. And now they weren't just talking while they got high in a train car. They were occupying Wall Street, and the conversation in the country was shifting in a radical and powerful way. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so I came to my boss, and I said, what are we doing? How are we adding to this? And he scoffed at me. And I scoffed too. I was like, yeah, they're not going to get anything. What are their demands even? And like, to be fair, that's still a very prominent and important critique of the Occupy movement, was ambiguous demands. But on the inside, something broke loose in me to say, hey, I can't actually write that off forever. That doesn't actually feel like something that I can ignore. And for me to be condescending towards something I actually find inspiring, for me to dismiss something that actually challenges my strongly held beliefs and the ways that I move every day, it scared me a little. It scared me a little. But I didn't talk to anyone about it. That would scare me even more. And so I simmered that way for another two years. And the truths that I had experienced outside of organizing, outside of my job, started to creep their way in. I started investing a little bit more in relationships I had outside of that strict organizing world. I started hearing other people define community organizing really, really differently. And I was curious. I continued to advance in my organization to train other people to lead and win campaigns, but increasingly I got involved in movement politics. I remembered a book that I had read by Piven and Cloward talking about how maybe the movements, the social movements, were actually the hope in the future and the community organizing, the NGOs, they were the ones in the stop gaps, chugging along, creating conditions, but that they might end up standing in the way, securing themselves rather than catching fire in the way that the movements did. I didn't want to be an obstacle. I wanted to create hope for a new and different kind of future. I wanted to flip those tables that I had been fighting and clawing my way to sit at. But so many people in my life were entrenched in that very straightforward, rigid political philosophy. And so I started investing quietly, slowly at first, and then with abandon in relationships outside of my circle. First, I started showing up at specific campaigns, demanding accountability for killer cops that were a little more amorphous, a little less tied to the organizations that had been telling me what to do and how to think. But that was part of a growing movement. They kept shouting, Black Lives Matter. And I felt like I was a part of something. I felt the value of being in the streets, whether or not we were making and achieving our specific demands. Some of our wins were specific, but some were cultural, some were moral, some were relational, just in terms of building a movement of solidarity. Eventually, I quit organizing. I walked away from it altogether. It's part of a broader story of how I got here because I felt called to be a pastor and to start a church. I rejected that part of my life and I moved on. And while I got more and more embedded in movement politics, in radical politics, 
I found, essentially, recovery groups for former Alinsky organizers. They rejected it wholeheartedly. They felt like they had been duped and lied to. And honestly, it was a place of a lot of grief. Some of them were still processing years of anger because they wanted to overturn those systems. And they felt like by participating in them, they had just held them right up. We talked different theories of change, movement politics. I became a part of revolutionary organizations that were talking about things far, far in the future, a very different way of being. And over time, I realized the tension, that there's a tension between what we can accomplish right now and our vision of what is to come. I had been so stuck in the right now, the campaigns that we could win in a matter of weeks or months, and I was sick of it. What I wanted was a vision of what could come generations from now. I wanted the kingdom. I wanted what my faith had told me was possible, the new future, the new heavens, and the new earth. And so even though I, I didn't think that a big radical revolution was imminent, I threw myself into that and walked altogether away from electoral campaigns and politics in that other way. And for years, I haven't engaged in electoral politics. I moved to a new city and didn't acquaint myself with the new systems here. Yesterday, we were tabling in Bayview. Our state senator came up to our table, and I, I introduced myself and said, what is your name? <laughs> he handed me his card, and I was like, oh, and I'm so sorry, Senator. <laughs> and so I haven't actually been able to begin reconstructing my view of local and immediate and electoral politics. But I feel ready, and I feel like I want to. I feel like I'm coming back up that slope, like the rubble I've been sitting in actually has something there for me, and that everything that I have learned in my deconstruction actually is more tools, more bricks, more foundation upon which I can build a theory of change where I can engage in the now while holding that hope for a new and distant future. I'm capable of holding paradox now, and so are my relationships. There are a lot of people I love from the time in my life that I was in organizing. And some of them have gone through their own deconstruction and have done other wild things, and I talk to them about all of this. And some of them are rigidly committed, rigidly committed to the place that they were. And we don't talk much anymore. And I love them, but they're not a big part of my life. I went through a deconstruction of something fundamentally important. And the reason I share with you that whole story is because I want you to understand that deconstruction is not just a part of the maturation of your faith. It is a part of owning your identity. It is a part of deeply and critically examining the things most important to you. You don't deconstruct something because it doesn't matter to you. You don't kick the Jenga tower and walk away. You deconstruct something because it is so important to you that you can't live with a faulty foundation. You can't abide those hurtful, harmful, dangerous things that you have been taught. And so you're going to take them apart piece by piece until you are left with rubble. And then you have a choice. You can either walk away altogether and find certainty in something else, or you can lean on the people around you 
And together you can build something new, something more flexible, something less rigid, something more powerful, something that can hold mystery and paradox and contradiction, something that brings you closer to God, but also closer to yourself. Now, I like the ideas of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And if you want to read more about those terms, I highly recommend you uh, look up Richard Rohr and what he has had to say about deconstruction and reconstruction. But for me, my little philosophy nerd self, I prefer a framework given much earlier by Paul Ricoeur, a French philosopher. He talked about what he called first and second naivete. Now in the first naivete, you have beliefs that are unexamined, but are so passionately adhered to. These beliefs tend to have certainty, rigidity, rules. These beliefs are intended to give you a foundation that, that allows you to be confident in the world, but only if you don't question them too hard. Now, this authority is external. You're not intended in your first naivete to trust yourself. And you can think about this again as growing up. Children, for instance, rely on the authority of their parent. But in first naivete with faith, authority is externalized not just to God, who is considered completely external and very literal. This is where we get the old white man in the clouds, right? But also then, we are primed to externalize that authority to the institutions and people around us just like I deferred entirely to my boss. We are told, we are primed to give that authority away. And so, that also primes us for abuse, for abuse of authority structures. Some people will opportunistically leverage that authority seeking to build power. And too many of us in this conversation have had that experience. But also there are some true believers who are just so convinced that God knows the rules and they know God's rules and they are called to enforce those rules. And you are then subject to them, the pastor, the elder, the church authority, someone else's interpretation of scripture. But either way, it is something that puts a, a block between you and your relationship to God and you are not considered trustworthy. First naivete does not question this because it is built on this. And in some ways, it is how we learn. We come in wholeheartedly. We come in naive. We come in and we take in this information and we trust those around us to give it to us responsibly. But in order to mature our faith, we have to reach a second naivete. Now, this second one comes through a process. And Ricoeur calls it critical distance but I like to think of it as the valley. Because if first naivete is up here, this is a mountaintop experience, this is believing, this is feeling, this is trusting and knowing, this is security, this is certainty. And then you start sliding down the mountain a little bit. And the rocks are falling and you're like, I don't feel like I have a good grip on this. And then you're like, I'm not so sure I actually liked it at the mountaintop. It felt really good sometimes, but what I had to do to stay there felt like harm. 
And so you slide, you slip, slide further down that mountain, more bricks coming out of your Jenga tower until you fall all the way down into the valley. Critical distance, Rakur calls it. And you're looking up at that mountaintop trying to understand if you should be clawing your way back there, but you don't like the look of those footholds because it doesn't actually seem so real, so secure. You think maybe the things that you've been told have been harmful. You think that maybe you don't want to abide by those rules that don't make sense anymore. You think that you're tired of trying to make other people follow rules that you don't think you believe anymore. So what do you do? Do you despair in the valley? Do you live there forever? Rukur says no. But instead of clawing your way back up that mountain, you turn around, you look ahead, and you start climbing in another direction. <coughs> Coming out of the valley, there is another mountaintop experience. There is another holy truth. There is another point of connection and fulfillment, emotional and spiritual ecstasy. It is there for you. But you're not going to get there by trying to claw your way back to the first one. You have to build a new path a second naivete. And once you reach the top, what you'll discover is that first of all, there is no top, there's only a path. But second of all, everything's a paradox. Everything is tense, is held in tension, but not in the way from before, not in the mental gymnastics, I can't look too closely at that kind of way, but in the I can Talk about Schrodinger's cat all day long, alive and not alive at the same time. I can hold two different ideas and be okay with that, find security. I want to give you one more example from my own life and my own faith, and that is my relationship to hell. Because I know, and this is what we're going to do for the whole series, I know that actually what folks are longing for is a piece-by-piece -piece breakdown of some of these really traumatic, difficult beliefs. And believe me, we will get there but we're trying to lay a foundation for why what we're doing is safe, important, and holy. And so I want to give you an example of this experience of first naivete, the valley, and second naivete from my own life. And it is my relationship to hell, to eternal damnation. When I was a child, I was told that there existed heaven and hell, and that some people were in hell, and they were eternally tortured. And I didn't question that because I was told that in the same way I was told the sky was blue and I needed to be nice to my sister. These were the, the foundational truths I was given. And so I believed it. But as time went on, I started to be like, hey, that's really messed up. I don't know how I, believe, how I can believe in a God who loves me, who loves all of creation, and could ever get to a point to choose to eternally torture some of God's good creation. That just doesn't add up. And so I went to my dad, who was one of the figures who had kind of given me this framework to begin with. I said, this is messed up. I demand answers. This is not okay. I was in the valley, the critical distance. And from that distance, I was looking up and saying, I don't buy it. And my dad had a kind of calm about him, a peace that infuriated me. Now, he wasn't advocating like, yeah, no, it's totally cool that there's eternal torture. In fact, my dad was saying, you know, I'm not sure I believe that either anymore. I don't know what I believe. Maybe hell is empty. Maybe hell existed for a time, and now in the fullness of time, it won't anymore. But 
I don't know. And ooh, did that make me mad. I'm like, how can you not know? How can you not have an answer for this? Because I had been given answers. I had expected answers. I wanted rules and certainty and rigidity. I didn't want any of this mystery nonsense. When I asked other people who were very committed to the eternal torture idea, they would use the mystery language, but just to go back to that original concept, they'd be like, God works in mysterious ways. God's ways are higher. I'm like, it doesn't sound higher if he's a torturer. That sounds like way worse than me. And so they would use that language, but they wouldn't actually hold any mystery or paradox. They would just say, yeah. And so I spent a long time in that valley, not knowing, feeling hurt, and thinking that the only way to feel good again was to get back to that belief where I didn't question it anymore. And instead, over time, I turned in a different direction. I leaned into my relationship with God, my relationship with community. I read other people's perspectives, but instead of taking them wholesale as my own, I just put them in the mix. I discerned through relationship, through prayer, through community, through hope. And I came to a second naivete, a second kind of peace. Similarly, in some ways, not questioning, but where the first one I didn't question because I accepted it wholesale, and the second one I questioned relentlessly because I demanded an answer. Now, I've opened up to the possibility that I might not get an answer, and that's okay. What I believe now is based in my relationship with God. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is so good. I believe that God is so good that I reject any idea that God would eternally torture God's creation. I just don't think that that sounds logical or rational or biblical. What happens? I don't know. What happens after we die? I got some guesses. But mostly, my belief is that I trust in the God of the universe who created me and loves me. I trust in the God of the universe who breathed life into you. I trust the God of the universe who created all things in goodness and for goodness. And I trust that what comes after death is good because I trust God is good. And I can hold that mystery because I lean not on my own understanding, not on the rigidity and certainty of rules, not on external authorities, but on my relationship with the God I know, my relationship with the Jesus who loves me. I can hold that mystery now, not on the strength of my knowledge or my claims to authority, but on the strength of the love given to me by the eternal God. It is relationship that helps us hold paradox and mystery and hope. And so, I want to ask you a few questions before we leave. Are you carrying the weight of your first naivete? Are you feeling badly about the times that you stood on that first mountain and railed at other people for sliding down, that they were backsliding? Are you feeling the pain of being a part of yanking them back up and trying to help people conform to rules that weren't, hurting, weren't helping them, but hurting them? It's okay that you were there and you can grieve the harm that you've caused or the ways that you have participated in things you don't believe in. That is okay and you are not alone. 
Are you feeling the weight of that tumbling Jenga tower? Are you slip-sliding into the valley and terrified that you might never find your way out? That's okay. You will. You can. And you don't have to do it alone. We are here to do this together. Are you standing in that valley, shaking your fists in rage, shouting back at the mountain, demanding different, better answers? I've been there. I've been there. And we can get accountability while moving on. We can create new systems of hope and belief and faith without ignoring the harm that was caused or subjecting ourselves to it anymore. But in the base of that valley, we have a couple of options. We can try and find a new kind of certainty. And that certainty usually comes at either somehow magically, I don't know many people who can do this, but some people do find their way back to that first mountain, turn off their brains, stop that, that questioning, and just go back to what they were taught. There are other people who find new certainty in a different way, and that new certainty is also through rejection. That new certainty comes by setting up camp in the valley, making a new set of rules. The rules in the valley are about how the mountain was wrong. The rules in the valley, the certainty of the valley is about how we've been lied to. And we can find new certainty, new rigidity, new externalized authority by spending all of our energy looking backwards and railing against where we've come from. And don't get me wrong, we got plenty to yell about. But if we are willing to lay down our certainty, if we are willing to do the terrifying work of relationship, we actually can move on into a new future. And if you want a faith, if you want a spiritual life and community, if you want to connect to God, then the way forward is not into certainty. The way forward is into relationship, into risk, and into hope. You can't feel certain again. I'm so sorry. Not in the way that you were before. But you can feel loved. You can feel safe. And you can feel secure. And that is different than certainty. That is the blessed assurance talked about by the theologians who went through this deconstruction themselves. Blessed assurance that God is good, that the people of God are made in love for love, that we can find truth if not answers, and that we don't have to do this alone. And so I invite you I invite you to be in this process intentionally as a community for the next several weeks as we go through some of the most deeply held beliefs that we have had to lay down and we move through that deconstruction into a hopeful new future, into a vision of what belief could look like beyond certainty, beyond rigidity, beyond the authority of the church, but leaning into our relationship with God, our trust in love and our community in one another. We can follow Peter in his revelation into a new truth that brings the gospel to new and different places and communities. We would not be here if it weren't for the deconstruction and revelation that Peter was talking about. We can create a new and different future for the generations to come.
And we can do that now. We have to walk away from where we've been, but we don't have to walk away from God and we don't have to walk away from each other. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, this is terrifying work, but it is so, so important, and we pray that you be with us in it. Our deconstruction is not disrespect. It is the ultimate honor that we can offer ourselves and you and one another to be faithful to relationship instead of rules, to be faithful to love instead of tradition. God, we pray that you would help us break down what does not serve us and it does not serve you. God, we pray that you would give us what we need to trust one another to build a new future. God, we pray that you would empower and inspire us to find you, God, not to find the church, not to find the rules, not to find the perfection that we see offered to us by that first phase, that first naivete. But God, the truth of your love, the truth of new life, help us to rebuild something more beautiful. Help us to lean into mystery. Help us to hold hope. Help us to bring our rational minds. Help us to bring the fullness of our identities and who you made us to be so that we can move from being locked away and locked up in someone else's expectations through the valley of our grief and rage and into a future of freedom, liberation, and love. God, it is terrifying work, but we do it with you, and we do it with one another, and we do it in hope. Amen.